Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 2nd, 2014, and this is episode 1417 of the Survival Podcast. And we took Monday off. We had a holiday, a vacation day. I don't think a lot of those, even when they are official holiday vacation days, I decided to take this one and spent yesterday, well... In the words of uh, Peter from Office Space, I did absolutely nothing, and it was everything I dreamed that it would be. I, I actually didn't do absolutely nothing yesterday, but I did about as close as I can get to absolutely nothing uh, on my homestead. I didn't do a lot, and uh, every once in a while I think we need a good mental health day like that, so that's what I did. Uh, hope you guys had a good day off if you had the day off. Anyway, I am back. We're not going to do a Monday show on Tuesday today. I want to actually expand on something we talked about on Friday. Uh, a few people said, yeah, there's not enough gun talk on TSP anymore. I don't know that there ever was a ton of gun talk on TSP, because I didn't want to make my show into the firearms podcast or the gun review podcast or anything like that, because, well, when I started this show, there were plenty of podcasts about guns. There was nothing on prepping survival, modern survivalism, so I built the show around that, but... Guns are part of that, so every once in a while I like to talk about guns. I had a question on Friday about the uh, Rossi combo guns, single-shot combo guns, and I steered the caller toward the NEF H&R handy rifle. Today's entire show is going to be based on that gun. Can you do a whole show based on a gun? Yeah, and it probably will go kind of long, honestly. It's one of the most underrated uh, and flexible firearms available in America today. It is not perfect. It has advantages, and it has... A fairly decent list of disadvantages that I'll talk about today. Before I get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Hey, do you know we live in a world where nobody can do anything anymore? Like if something's broken, call somebody to fix it. That's the American way now. I, I saw a commercial the other day that I, made, I, want, I wanted to shoot myself when I saw this. Unfortunately, I, I didn't do it. But it was a stupid commercial for Lowe's where this lady, like, kicks her, her washer because it doesn't do what she wants. She goes online, she clicks a button, and a new washer and dryer show up because it didn't do what she wanted. That is the mentality that we have today because people don't know how to do stuff. What does that have to do with knife kits? If you learn how to make knives from a kit, you'll start remembering that, you know, we can do stuff. We can learn skills. We can build capabilities and knowledge into our lives. Doing little things like finishing off a kit knife and then maybe moving up a little bit from there and making things a little bit more custom, that's part of putting the skills back into the hands of Americans. That's part of why I love it. KnifeKits.com is a great sponsor. Check them out today. And their website is KnifeKits.com. Next up today, HarvestEating.com. When, sometimes when people say I don't talk enough about guns, they say, you're talking an awful lot about growing food, though. Well, that's because if you don't eat, you die. You may have to defend your life with a gun, but you're going to have to eat every day. So if you're going to eat, you might as well eat food that tastes great. Get over to Chef Keith's website, HarvestEating.com. He will help you do that by teaching you to cook seasonally and locally and, how, and show you how to make cooking into a life-slash-survival skill. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill, you've never done what I've done. That's live on MREs for six months. After that, you'll want to know how to cook, I promise you. 
Check him out today, HarvestEating.com. Great uh, sauces, spices, and other stuff in his store. Great podcasts, great videos, all kinds of cool stuff. Chef Keith's an awesome guy. Remember, he is also one of our expert council members, so you can call questions in for him to the Think Line, HarvestEating.com. Let's look at the year that was the episode, 1417. Most of the time when I get Alex's two or three segments, I go, I want to read that one. Today, I'm like, ugh. All three of them are really good. Uh, but I'm just going to read the titles and read one to you and give you my thoughts on it. Number one, The King's English. I really think you should go to tspwiki.com today and read The King's English. The way you speak today is so related to that segment, it's awesome, but I'm not going to do that one. Link, boys, he can't hold a candle. That's the one I'm going to read. The Great Schism is Resolved. That's really a bigger thing than most people realize about history is uh, the schism in the Catholic Church, given what authority the Church held over mankind in 1417. But in 1417, what is a link, and why does it cost money? Yes, 1417 is the year of the episode today. The Middle Ages is a dark place, and London is no exception. If a person wants to visit a local pub, he needs a torch or a lantern to light the way. In London, there is a service called Link Boys, who carry a torch made of a stick covered in pitch and twisted cotton fibers called the Link. For the cost of a farthing, which I guess is probably like a penny, they will escort you from door to door lighting your way. At many houses, a metal device is mounted on the wall at the doorway to snuff out the torch. However, in winter, it is difficult to find a Link Boy, so the mayor of London has inst instituted street lamps. These lamps will light the London streets through winter. My take by Alex Shrug. Bob can't hold a candle to George is a phrase meaning that Bob is not even worthy to be a link boy for George. And as Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. How many times have you used or heard the phrase, oh, they can't hold, this can't hold a candle to that. He can't hold a candle to him. She can't hold a candle to her. That's where it comes from. They took on the power, oh, I'm sorry, uh, back into uh, Alex's thoughts here. Uh, a similar phrase would be, he is not worthy to hold his coat. It is generally accepted that Mayor Henry Barton instituted the first street lamps. There's no hard evidence of it. It's a unique idea. The Romans would light their villas at night. The slave who lit the lamps was called Lantinarius, which is Latin for guide. Lantuma is the stand that holds a torch, and that is where we get the word lantern. That's interesting, too. Here's my take on this. It's yet another example of how whenever we move forward with technology, somebody loses a job. So here, this is this link boy. It's too cold to work in winter, so you stay home. And you go, I'll go make my farthlings in the, in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, and They can just stumble through the dark. The rest, and a stupid mayor comes and you know puts these lanterns up, and all of a sudden they don't really need you anymore. Just a thought. The evolution of technology is a great thing, but it always comes with another side of the sword cutting the opposite way, and that means that human beings need not fear technology, but need to become useful in spite of technological evolutions that takes their place. It's nothing new, man. There, you, as we move through history, you'll hear of times where when they developed things like the first combines that were horse-drawn, 
workers going and rioting because they no longer were needed to scythe the fields. Just some thoughts. Anyway, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show, the NEF Handy Rifle. Uh, I want to start out, well, what the heck is an NEF Handy Rifle in the first place? It is a single-shot rifle. It is uh, opened by depressing a lever with the right hand. They're really set up for the right-handed shooter, though a left-handed shooter can adapt really easy to them, but that lever's right where that right thumb is. Push that button. Breaks like a break-action single-shot shotgun. In fact, the NEF Handy Rifle has a shotgun that's almost just like it with a different receiver we'll talk about in a second called the Partner Shotgun. And if you grew up like uh, many of us did and the first thing you ever learned how to shoot was either a 410 or a 20-gauge single-shot shotgun, it may very well have been a Partner Shotgun. And if it wasn't, it could have been you know anything from a Stevens to a Sears and Roebuck to God knows what, but it probably worked the same way. You got a lever, you push a button, the gun breaks open, shell ejects if there was one in there, you put a new shell or cartridge in, you close it, you cock a hammer back with your thumb, you pull the trigger, it goes bang. If you want to shoot it, you got to open it and do it again. It's a single-shot rifle in this case. It's very much like just about any single-shot shotgun you would ever be familiar with. It is an inherently safe weapon. Uh, it's why a lot of times they are chosen for, for guns for kids for their first guns. I have mixed feelings about that I'll talk about in a second. But the reason it's inherently safe is the only way that gun can fire is if that hammer is cocked all the way back and locked. It uses what's called a transfer bar safety. And that means that there's firing pin that goes up against the cartridge, it hits the primer, and bang, it goes off. But the hammer doesn't actually ever touch the pin. When you pull the hammer back, there's a bar that comes up between the firing pin and the hammer, and when the hammer comes down, it drives that transfer bar into the firing pin. The transfer bar transfers the energy from the hammer to the primer and the firing pin. And without the bar in place, the hammer actually has a gap in it, and it, it can fall as hard as you want, and it can't set off the cartridge. I'm not advising this, but basically you could take a, a handy rifle, put it in a vise, and beat on the hammer, beat on the, the hammer with a ball peen hammer, right, or a small sledge, and it's not going to go off. You'll destroy the gun before you set it off. So it's inherently safe. And if somebody's cocking it back, as long as their finger's not on the trigger, come all the way back and release, which is even difficult to do. I don't think it's even possible to do with the, the, the guns that have been made in the last 30 years. I think maybe the very, very old first generation might have had that issue. But if you're cocking it, and you've got the hammer almost all the way back, and it slips, and the hammer falls forward, well, since it hasn't been engaged, the transfer bar hasn't been engaged, and as the hammer falls, the, the transfer bar falls, and it still won't fire. So it has to be cocked, and the trigger has to be pulled. When that happens, then it fires. Okay, So that is the basics of the gun. It is built with a two-piece stock. It's got a normal stock to the rear, and it's got a four-end stock that has a single screw, Take that screw out, you pull that stock off, you push the button like you're opening it, the barrel comes off. And it can be broken down and transported that way, or you can put a different barrel back on it, which is, if we, if we didn't have that, this thing wouldn't be nearly as cool as it is. Okay? It's the fact that we can swap barrels out. And to swap a barrel out literally takes one minute for a person to do. 
And I don't mean one minute moving like you you broke down and put back together your M16 when you were in the Army. I mean, it's remove a screw, pop off a forend, drop off, drop in, close, forearm back on, screw back in. It's that simple. So you don't have to be well trained to be able to do this. Uh, one of the most appealing factors to these guns is the cost. Like anything that's successful, NEF, H&R, Partner, Marlin, all the same thing now has come out with different variations and some stainless steel and some synthetic stocks and some cool stuff and target models. But the basic handy rifle will have an MSRP of $249 to $269 depending on options. So under $300. You'll find street prices all day, $220, $230. 30.06, 7mm 08, 45.70. I mean, just, it, they're just not expensive. They're under 300 bucks. So the cost makes them very appealing because they're affordable. And I think there is a certain mystique to the single shot rifle. I think a single shot shotgun is kind of looked at as that's a cheap gun for kids to learn how to shoot with or to throw in the back of a truck and not worry about it getting busted up. But the single shot rifle. Some of the finest rifles in the world are single shot or double rifles. I mean, stuff that like the gunsmith that engraves them sleeps with the gun for like a year to finish the engraving and wakes up in the middle of the night. And I mean, those, so there's, that is not what this is, right? But I think because of that, there's a certain mystique to a single shot rifle. Um, advantages. The advantages of this rifle are numerous. To me, the biggest advantage is the overall length relative to the barrel length. And what I mean by that is if you pick up a rifle of your choice, whether it's an AR-15, whether it's a Remington Model 700 bolt-action rifle, a pump shotgun, whatever you have, and, and just imagine if you don't have a gun with you right now that you can look at, imagine you're looking at a rifle right now. Think about the chamber in action that you would be looking at. So if you're looking at a shotgun, you've got this kind of boxy-shaped area. You probably feed the shells in from the bottom into a tube. The shotgun comes back. The bolt comes back. Out comes the shell. Shell comes out of the tube. Ramp lifts it up. Back in. That whole space, that whole receiver, imagine you just took a torch and cut the stock off and cut the right where the, the shell ends up seated into the chamber That piece comes out and the whole gun collapses. That's what a single shot basically does. So you can have a rifle with a full rifle length barrel, a 22 inch, which is kind of a standard length rifle barrel for many cartridges. And there are a few barrels that are longer than that available, but a 22 inch rifle barrel is your typical Model 70, Model 700, Ruger Model 77, bolt action, Your, your typical sporting rifles for centerfire calibers, 22 inches. It's kind of the point where you get the maximum efficiency out of most of your cartridges. You come down to a 20-inch or 18-inch barrel. You don't get a full powder burn. You go up from there, unless it's a certain cartridge with certain efficiencies able to be tapped out of it. You don't gain much for the inches you add to the weapon. So you've got that full-length barrel, but yet... The overall length of the gun is much shorter than you would expect. To put it completely into perspective, the average 22-inch barreled handy rifle has an overall length, when assembled, of 38 inches. Your typical bolt-action rifle like Model 700 Remington with a 22-inch barrel is going to have an overall length of 42 and a half inches. So 42 and a half 
verses 38. It's a little over five inches in length. It doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're going through woods and what have you, it's, it's a significantly shorter barrel or shorter length. The barrel, again, is the same length. So you have this short, compact rifle. Because it's a, it's a single shot, it is very, very reliable. I mean, if, if you have a malfunction, it's the ammo, it's not the rifle. I've never seen one of them misfire with good ammo, ever. And it does encourage you to make your shots count. If you're out target practicing, it makes your, to me, it makes your target practice more effective because it slows you down. It makes you purposefully think about every shot. There are some disadvantages. Number one, for as handy as the rifle appears, and it is pretty handy, it is heavy. Uh, they're made from heavy steel, and they weigh about seven pounds. So you're all, even though you're gaining five inches shorter than your Model 700, let's say, uh, you're only cutting the weight by maybe a third of a pound at the most depending on the options and what you're getting and what the other one is. And, of course, they make lightweight versions of those bolt-action weapons. They're expensive, though. They're not, you're not going to pick one up for $230. But there is an inherent weight issue with the NEF. And the only thing I, that I actually think that makes that a disadvantage, because it's still a comparable weight, is when people put them in the hands of children because it was cheap, it was available, it was affordable, and, and now the kid is having a hard time with the gun because it weighs more than you would expect. And it's kind of heavy for a kid, especially when you're introducing them to, to you know, cartridges like 22 Hornet. Or I'm not even going to talk about them, but there are a whole slew of rimfires available that use a different uh, frame because they're rimfire versus centerfire. So the firing pin has to be different. So you can't put a rimfire barrel on the centerfire versions of the handy rifle. The, the 22 single shots, though, are just heavy. You know, you're trying to teach a kid to shoot. There's a lot of weight there compared to something like a, uh, you know, a youth model Marlin or something like that. So I don't think that they are everything uh, perfect when it comes to young shooters. But once the kiddo can handle the weight, they're great because they weigh about seven pounds and you know seven and a half with a scope on them. When you you know the disadvantage becomes an advantage when you put a mild mannered deer round in there like a 30-30 Winchester. Uh, or 44 Magnum. They have very low recoil signatures. 357 Magnum, again, would be another one with a low recoil signature that a young shooter can take to your size game with. Uh, and if you go with 44 or 357, obviously you can put 44 or 38 Special in for that kid to train with and, and, and only go to that higher recoiling round as they step up and actually take aim. So there's the disadvantage of the weight, but there's the advantage of the weight in that they... You know, it does help with the recoil some. That said, as I talked about last week when I answered the question, the youth stock on these things is not very ergonomical and it tends to make cartridges that are fairly light recoiling a little heavier felt recoil. So I told the story last week, I won't belabor it, but I got my son one of these when he was very young and small in stature. I got him a 243 barrel and he really didn't like shooting it. And I can tell you at the same age, if I would have put a little bolt action, 243 in his hands, he would have been fine. 
But we went and got him a 357 Magnum barrel. We got him practicing with 38 specials. He got comfortable with that. We put 357 Magnums in. It was no recoil really at all. It was just a little bit louder, and he was just fine with it. So understand that if you have a shooter small enough to need that shorter stock, then it, it may be the case you need to stick to really light recoiling rounds until they're big enough to put a bigger stock on it. And the stocks are real easy. One bolt, you can swap them out. And they're not real expensive. So you can buy the kiddo, the youth-framed weapon, and alter it as they come up in age by just changing out the rear stock. The other disadvantage, if you do buy a youth model, especially a shotgun, you're not going to shoot it well. That short stock will make getting a good lockup with it for you to shoot it, unless you're a real small person, very impractical. Um, shotguns, when you are shooting, basically your eye is the rear sight, and it needs to be tight down on the barrel. So if you buy a, a shotgun barrel and a rifle barrel for this thing, and you're out teaching the kid to shoot, you're probably going to want to bring your own shotgun because you're going to have a hard time breaking clays or whatever with that short stock. Um, and the big reason I say that is you'd want to be a good example, so it's not that you'll miss. You can probably, with like a 20-gauge or a 410, hold it off the shoulder a little bit and up against the, the cheekbone and get down on the weapon because I've done that, but then you're not modeling good form to the person you're trying to teach. I don't know if that's a disadvantage, but I thought I would bring it up. Now, what makes this gun, you know, all this in a box of chocolates, if you want to put it that way, is the barrel accessory program. So I want to tell you how the barrel accessory program works. You do what I said earlier. You take the screw out and you pull the forearm off of the gun. And you take the barrel off the gun and you send the, the receiver with the rear stock and the forearm to H&R NEF Marlin Firearms with an order form and your money for your new barrel. And in about four weeks to six weeks, your gun with new barrel or barrels comes back and that's it. And you have them. And it's that simple. The only thing that's really like this out there is the contender uh, and the Encore. And the, the issue there is a barrel for one of those costs more than a brand new with barrel out of the door NEF H&R handy rifle. So there, that's an expensive option if you go with the Encore contender. The NEF H&R is cheap. Let me give you some pricing uh, just to give you some ideas of what's available. And I'll just read the rifle price list here for you because it'll give you a, an overview of what's available. Uh, 22 Hornets, 104 bucks. 223 Remington, 104 bucks. 223 Remington uh, with a little bit longer barrel, also 104 dollars. A stainless barrel for 223, 123 dollars. A bull barrel for 223, uh, 123 bucks. 22250. Uh, 104, 22, 250, and a stainless barrel, 142. I'm not going to read them all because it'll get you'll get bored, but you can get the idea. Anywhere between about 104 and with just a few things, uh, 140 bucks for a barrel. And I do think they charge like 10 or 20 bucks to fit the barrel for you now. Plus, you got shipping both ways. But for most of the barrels, you're out 100, 104 dollars. When I first started playing around with these things. Almost 15 years ago, 
I think a rifle barrel was about $85 and a shotgun barrel was about $35. So they are very affordable then and, and still, when you compare that to buying another gun, uh, extremely affordable now. Most of the shotgun barrels are now about $60. Bucks. Some of the other stuff that we'll talk about that's somewhat custom uh, ranges $80 to $120. So in all of those instances, for well under $200, bucks, you can essentially add a gun is one way to look at it. And that is kind of the, the, the whole magic of this thing. Without that, it's just a single-shot cheap rifle. But the fact that you can have one frame and put together different combinations or maybe pick up a couple frames and then barrel out a few of those is something that makes this into a tinkerer's gun. People that, that get into the H&R NEF world are people that like to play with things. Uh, they like to make their own custom stocks because it's a very simple made-up with the receiver. Uh, or they like to support small entrepreneurs that make accessories or stocks or do custom barrel jobs for the weapon. Um, there is an important thing to know about the barrel accessory program. You really don't want to go out and buy somebody else's barrel for your H&R NEF handy rifle. It's not like the contender. That's why there is a barrel accessory program. It's been done. And it's been done safely. Basically, you have to get lucky and get a barrel that happens to meet spec when you put it on your rifle. You would think that all the rifles would go out the door machined exactly the same way and every barrel would fit every rifle perfectly. But that single-shot action, when it locks up, it has to have the chamber hit the breech face of the rifle perfectly. And I've, I've seen some of them that I've, I've taken the barrel from one, put it on the other, and it seems pretty good, and I, I've never fired it. I've never gotten no or no go, ga go and no go gauges to check tolerances or anything with it. I uh, just decided I don't need to do that. But I can tell you that the handy rifle frame that I bought for my, for my son fitted with a 243 and 20-gauge barrel when we bought it for him. And again, we added a 357 to it. If you take the barrels from his uh, gun and put them on the frame for my 3006, for instance, when you close it up, you can physically move the barrel. And that tells you right there, that ain't going to happen. That ain't going to work. And if I were to try to take my 3006 barrel and put it onto his frame, it won't even close because the difference is that dramatic. That, I've not seen that be typical. His is clearly a little different than what's typical. But if there, that great variation exists, then it can exist elsewhere, and I just wouldn't do it. The barrels are so inexpensive to have fitted, I would just have them custom fitted to your gun. It all comes down to the lug that's on the barrel, and that is used to set the tolerance and how it meets up with the breech face. Though there are Some of you guys are machinists and can do this type of work for yourself, and that's different. There are people that even have taken to making custom barrels. Uh, you have to hunt them down, but the NEF H&R email list on Yahoo Groups is a great place to look for stuff like that. But there's even people that have done things like, okay, you want a 338.06? Great. Send your rifle off to the factory. Get yourself a 22 Horn or a 223 or something like that. Send it to me, and they'll rechamber and bore out the, the barrel. Now, you got a lot of money into the gun at that point, but there are people who will do it. And that's what I'm saying. This is a tinkerer's gun. And you can tinker at that level, or you can just play around. 
you can pick up a, a, a nice new weapon for $240, $250, bucks, get a few barrels added to it, and you can be into it at that point for maybe three, dollars $400, get some reloading components, and you've got a whole world waiting to be explored with different cartridges and different loads. And whenever you get a hair up your butt and decide, you know what, I'd like to learn about this cartridge, if they happen to have that, you can just send that weapon in and get another barrel fit for it. You'll probably find yourself, if, if you're the kind of person that has more guns than you need, which I think we all should, but you know, because you, because you can, not just because you want to, um, financially, that it'll make sense to have at least two frames. And that'll be so when you're tinkering, when you send away one to get that, that, that cool little 7mm 08 barrel jack's gonna talk about in a minute, uh, you, you, you're not completely out of the ability to use any of your other handy rifle barrels. You do need to keep them mated with the receivers, though, if you're going to take that approach. Um, in my instance, my son has one, and it, it's, uh, it's now with him. It stayed with me for years after he moved out. Um, I have two. I have one that has a 4570 barrel for it. It's an older frame. And I have one that is a, it came with a 3006, and I've had a 223 uh, fitted for it and a couple shotgun barrels fitted for it. And a 357 Magnum barrel fitted for it that was chambered out 357 maximum. That's a real easy chamber job you can do yourself. That's just to give you an idea of how you can play with this stuff. Um, but that's the accessory program. I want to talk about some of the cartridges that are available. I'm not going to do them all, but I'm going to talk about some of the ones that I think are really cool that they're available in this gun. The first one is the 22 Hornet. And the 22 Hornet is, it's just one of the sweetest little varmint rounds ever created. And in a pinch, I'd shoot a deer with it. I really wouldn't want to, but I'd shoot a deer with it. 22 Hornet's one I need to get next time I order another barrel. Uh, years ago, on the Yahoo email list that I talk about, I traded with a guy for brass and bullets and reloading dies and all kinds of stuff for the 22 Hornet and said, I'm going to get a Hornet. And I never did. And I've always wondered why I didn't go get myself a 22 Hornet, other than it's another one of those things you got to get around to doing. The uh, the 22 Hornet is right in between the 22 Magnum and the 223 Remington. It, it's it's kind of right in there. Some people say it's not really an improvement over the 22 Magnum. Uh, those people are wrong. I mean, that's the only thing I can say is to say that the 22 Hornet is not an improvement over the 22 Magnum would be to say that the 22 Magnum is not an improvement over the 22 Long Rifle. It, it's at least that dramatic. It's also very, very cheap to reload. Uh, you get yourself a, a can of Hodgson 110 and your bullet of choice and uh, a, Lee, a Lee load all, the simple little pocket Lee loader. That you can you know reload with a block of wood and a and a and a, and a, and a plastic hammer, and you can sit and load rounds all day for dirt cheap. I'm not saying that's the way to do it. I think getting a, a decent little press or something is the way to go. But uh, the 22 Hornet is just this this sweet little round. I consider the Hornet a 200 yard varmint cartridge. Animals up to the size of like fox, um, coyotes, you might want to hold back a little bit on it. But a headshot at 200 yards would work just fine. It is not a 223. It is not equivalent to the 223 or even a 222. Uh, it doesn't have the long range capabilities of those, but it's still absolutely sweet. And what it makes it so sweet is while it's a, a, an immense improvement over the 22 Magnum, I mean, we're talking about a, a round that you can put a, a 35 grain bullet at over 3,000 feet per second. 
55 grain bullet at about 2,200 feet per second. I mean, the, the 22 people that say the 22 Winchester Magnum is is equivalent to the 22 Hornet just don't know anything about ballistics at all. Uh, and the amount of energy difference there is is incredible. Um, but yet it's not much louder. So there's almost no recoil with a 223 anyway. So the recoil really isn't that big a deal. But the fact that that thing is quiet is all get out. It's about as quiet as a 22 Magnum is what makes it really sweet for hunting in areas for varmints where louder shots might be a problem. It might generate phone calls to authorities or something like that. I would also tell you that if I was going to own a Hornet, I would probably pick this this rifle we're talking about today over any other rifle because it is so simple to rechamber it to what's called K-Hornet or an improved version of the Hornet. And all that is is the shoulder. So this is a slightly bottlenecked cartridge. It comes down in a taper and then it has a shoulder and then uh, uh, then it has you know the bullet seated there uh, in the throat. And uh, when you make the K-horn, basically you just ream the chamber a little bit to move the shoulders forward to a slightly steeper angle. This was originally done to squeeze a little bit more velocity out of the Hornet. And you can get about 100 to 150 feet per second, depending on the load, more velocity with it. But what was found, and again, the Hornet came up at a, at a time when all this was new. This concept of high-velocity 22s was, was brand new. People were doing 221 Fireball and all these other things. This is way before the 223. And, uh, in fact, it was a 222 that really kind of put the Hornet to bed. It was so popular until that happened. The, the brass is thin-walled. It's got this weird little taper to it. And because of that, the case life isn't that great. So while it's reloadable, you get a lot of damaged cases, and you get a lot of the necks on it cracking on you after three or four reloads. When you change that shoulder angle and, and take the Hornet into the K-Hornet, the case life at least doubles, and the number of problems with the reloading process goes way, way down. And you end up with something that's about as reloadable as anything else, without all the problems. And you get a little bit better performance out of it. The concept of moving the forward, the shoulders forward in rounds, there are a lot of uh, rounds people have done that with, uh, like the 3006 Ackley, which is basically the same thing done to a 3006 cartridge. You can't do that easily with an NEF handy rifle. You'd have to be a good gunsmith and maybe start with a 308, and you could turn that into a 308 Ackley. Because rounds like the 3006, the 270, the 308, headspace on the shoulders. So that means when the round goes in, the shoulders going into the chamber are actually which what controls the depth of the cartridge because they're either semi-rimmed or rimless cartridges. They don't headspace on the rim. The, the 22 Hornet is made like the old 3030 or 4570. It's a rimmed cartridge. And the rim against the breech face is what headspaces the cartridge. So you can easily move those shoulders just a tiny bit forward in the 22 Hornet in the NEF and get that K Hornet without having to refit the whole damn gun. So it's a very easy modification. And it's probably the most popular modification that the advanced tinkerer starts out with with the NEF. And again, that to me, and I think almost everybody I've talked to on the email list that's done that modification, it's not, oh, I can get 100 feet per second more. That's nice, right? Uh, half a grain more powder fits in there, and, and now I can get this. It's 
the life of the reloading capability of, of the weapon. Because the 22 Hornet's kind of expensive to buy factory, but it reloads dirt cheap and it has that quiet signature. Next up, 223 Remington. Um, I don't have to say much about that. Uh, there's just a ton of ammunition available for it, tons of different types of ammunition available for it. Uh, it is, of course, the civilian version of the 5.56, though they're not identical. Uh, they can, in fact, be interchangeable. Um, because of that, there's just so much available to the 223 shooter. From a standpoint of factory ammunition, surplus cases that you do have to change your re but I'm like it's not a reloading show so I'm not going to get into it you have to change a little bit with your reloading if you're using military brass but you can do it um, and then bullet selection is through the roof now the Hornet can pretty much shoot just about any bullet within practicality that the 223 can because there's some heavier weight bullets that can go in the 223 but you need a different rifle twist and what have you the 223 in the NEF though is not what we think of on the AR platforms with 30-round magazines, and it's a, a battle rifle-type implement. It's a single-shot rifle. So it's a varmint rifle. And the accuracy inherent to the NEF makes it definitely a 300-yard-plus varmint rifle. If you do your part, and sometimes with a few little tweaks, tweaks on the gun, because the gun, again, is not perfect. It's a two-piece stock, single-shot weapon, and there's some little tweaks I'll talk about toward the end that you want to do to maximize accuracy out of them. But, I mean, I don't really have to say much more for the .223 uh, because it kind of speaks for itself if you know anything about guns. But this is, you know, your coyote varmint level, gophers, groundhogs, ground squirrels if you want to turn them inside out, what have you. Uh, reach out and touch them with it. And it has very low recoil in a 7-pound rifle. So much so that you can usually see your shot impact in the scope. The 22 Hornet, you can absolutely see your shot impact in the scope. So I'm going to kind of gloss over the 223. 243 Winchester was in Friday's show, so I'm not going to say that much about it. But to me, I included it in this list of the cartridges I really like because of its dual purpose. I don't think there's another cartridge you can make the case for specifically just by grabbing off-the-shelf factory ammunition that really is the cartridge you can go out and just do everything I just said the 223 with, plus you can go out and shoot medium to even large-sized deer, pronghorn antelope, medium game with. And it's absolutely adequate for both of those jobs. Uh, someone took exception to that comment uh, in the blog, We had a little debate going back and forth, and hopefully I didn't piss him off too much. But basically, he said he wouldn't recommend a .243 to new shooters, only experienced shooters. Um, I find this to be completely ridiculous, and I, I, I probably shouldn't have, but I said, do you work for Academy or like Walmart at the gun counter? Because that's the kind of thing I hear when a guy's like trying to make a decision between a .380 and a 9mm. It's like, you got to be really, really accurate with the 9mm, but you know, but but not as much. But the .380, if you're not right there, that that's just... It's ridiculous. The As long as you're using right-for-the-job bullets, not cartridges, bullets, right? The actual terminal projectile that flies through the air and smashes into the animal and kills it. As long as you're using the right composition and weight bullet with the .243, it's every bit as lethal to a white-tailed deer as a .308 is. And it just, it just flat-out is. And it's a better cartridge than the 35 Remington or the 3030 Winchester's a deer cartridge. And you don't hear a lot of people saying that they're underpowered for deer. 
I think in our modern world, with all our advertisements by Hornady and Lyman and Barnes and everything, that we've gotten into this mentality that deer now wear body armor. Um, if you put a round like a .243 through the lungs of a white-tailed deer, it is going to die. And out to about 300 yards, unless you're talking about really big deer. I'm talking British Columbia, northern Michigan, you know, whitetails that run 250, 300 pounds. Unless you're talking about a really big deer like that, uh, you're going to end up with a hole that goes in and comes out the other end. Especially if you go with something like the 100-grain Corlocks or something like that. And an animal with a hole through both lungs will run about as far as it can hold its breath, in the words of Jack O'Connor. So it's just a great round for that. I do think that if you live in a place where you get into larger deer, you either if you're using the .243, you either need to drop back your effective range to about 200 yards, and I think it's adequate at that range, or you need to step up in caliber as you get into bigger animals. I certainly wouldn't go elk hunting with a .243, though I, I, I have no doubt that a properly per placed shot will kill an elk with a .243. The larger bone structures and things like that, you know, you're getting into a place where I, I know .30.06 is adequate, but I'm looking to the .338.06, the .35 Whalen is minimum recommended elk calibers, especially when you're talking big bull elk and you're on the hunt of a lifetime and you may only ever get to do it once. So that just gives you an idea of how I feel about that. But the .243 is this great dual-purpose caliber. The next one is the 7mm 08 Remington. The 7mm 08 is in the same family as the .243, and it comes out of the .308. And, and these are all just the .308 neck to different calibers. The 7mm 08 Remington may be the best all-around caliber for big game in North America today other than if you're hunting big bears and then you're stepping up to a totally different class medium boar, large boar as far as I'm concerned if you're messing with grizzly bears um, though I'll tell you what if I had a choice between a sharp stick or a 7mm 08 and a grizzly bear trying to eat me, I'll take the 7mm 08 any day but the overall utility of the 7mm 08 is probably such that it is the most underrated cartridge in North America. Again, I mentioned on on uh, on Friday's show that I, I I love the 3006. I find it to be almost the classiest rifle cartridge ever created because it was created so long ago. And it is still adequate for anything in North America. It really is. I, it's a touch light on the big bears, but it will do the job. It is flat shooting. It is hard hitting. It has taken almost every animal on the face of the planet at one time or another. It has all of these great things going for it. So it's hard when I you know, turn to things like the .243 and 7mm 08 and say they're better this way. The 7mm 08 is actually flatter shooting than a 3006 and carries more energy relative to the weight of the bullet out to 400 yards in practical shooting situations with the right bullet for the right animal. In other words, the weight of the, the 30 caliber bullet goes up when you get into heavier bodied games compared to the weight of the 7mm. The case that the 308 is built on is basically again a shortened 3006 
the efficiency gain was was something special when they did it with a 30 caliber. But it, you can make the case, as academic and on paper as it might be, that the 3006 is still a more powerful round, especially with heavier bullets than the 308. When they started necking that thing down and created the 243, the 260, which I wish NEF had that option, and the 7mm 08, the efficiency demonstrated how awesome it was. And the 7mm 08 just hits it perfectly. It's almost, almost as as is all around as a seven millimeter magnum almost not quite but almost with good hand loads um, and weights of about 145 to 165 grain uh, seven millimeter bullets the seven millimeter 08 will carry about 1500 pounds of energy out to four, 400 yards and that's about the limit of how far I need to be shooting anyway and that compares very well I mean if we look at um, a 3006, uh, factory 165 grain round uh, at at 400 yards. We're talking about 1500 pounds, and there's a lot less recoil from that seven millimeter 08. So it, it's ballistically, actually, I would say it's superior to the 3006 and 165 grain bullet because the seven millimeter at the same weight or near the same weight, say 160 grains will have a higher sectional density. Now, sectional density is the ability of a round to penetrate. So, even though they have about the same amount of energy, and yes, the the 30 caliber bullet is a little bit bigger in diameter, the 7 millimeter at that range has a greater penetrating capability. So, is one really better than the other? I don't know. But I know if you can if you can run with the 06... You're, you're doing something right. And if you can do it with a shorter cartridge, which doesn't really matter in a single shot rifle, which we're talking about today, but that means you can go in a short action versus a long action rifle. Um, and you can do it with less recoil. And for the same level of performance and inherent accuracy, the 7mm 08 is probably one of the most inherently accurate cartridges out there. You've got some. It's an easy cartridge to reload for, and you're never going to not be able to find brass because you can always reform 308 if you have to. So it's just awesome. And if I didn't own any guns at all, and I had to now, let's say I lost all my guns, sold all my guns, whatever, and I now had to buy a single rifle, and I was going to take that rifle anywhere from shooting small whitetails in South Florida, medium-sized whitetails in South Texas, pronghorn out on the plains of Wyoming, elk in the Colorado Rockies, and I and you said, buy one gun to do all that? God, I hate saying this. I'd buy a 7mm 08 over a thirty oh six. It is a It is a flatter shooting cartridge that takes just as much energy out just as far. And it's available in some really neat rifles. Short action. I mean, you take a Model 7 Remington, 18-inch barrel, and you still keep most of the performance of that 7mm 08. And you try to put a 30-06 in an 18-inch barrel, and you got a flame half a, half a foot long coming out the end of it when you shoot it. And uh, you've got a lightweight, go-anywhere mountain rifle that will knock the snot out of an elk at 300 yards. That's pretty impressive. 
So I love the 7mm 08, and yet I don't own one. Probably because I feel like I'm cheating on the 306, but I need to get over that. Next up is the 3030 Winchester. You might want to know why I put that in there. Um, one, there's just so much ammo available. But two, it gets us into the 30 caliber medium game world in the handy rifle with a rimmed cartridge. Why is that important? Well, we can modify the shoulder and make basically a 30-30 Ackley improved if we want to. But just the rimmed cartridges work really well in the handy rifle. And there is some inherent accuracy things that, that, that play up with the handy rifle, and there's some stuff people do to enhance that with basically a partial floated barrel. You can't completely free float the barrel because there's a, a lug, a screw that holds the forearm on, so you can only float back to there. And they put a little rubber washer there. And when you, when you fire a rifle... You get two things. You get oscillation and harmonics. Oscillation is when you fire that rifle barrel, that barrel actually moves. It, 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 it oscillates. And then the harmonics are how consistently does it oscillate shot to shot as the temperature changes, pressure changes, and things like that. And this is one of the re big reasons that floating a barrel, which is just making sure the barrel doesn't touch the forearm at all, increases accuracy shot to shot. So how consistently is the rifle accurate? How What kind of a group do you get? You tighten that group up. One of the ways is by floating the barrel. Again, you can only do that so much with the handy rifle, and because it's a two-piece rifle, it is a little bit more subject to some accuracy issues with shot to shot accuracy, especially as the barrels heat up and things like that. So you can do this little rubber washer trick and you can go to the email list. I'll have a link for you today and learn how to do that. And it's fun to tinker with this stuff. But when you go to lower pressure rounds like the 22 Hornet and the 3030, without tinkering around, these guns blow you away with their accuracy. And then we're going to try something else here, just to be fun to talk about the way guys are with guns and wanting things that sound exotic and different. Well, guys, what if I told you this? There's a European cartridge. It's specifically designed to shoot in single-shot rifles with pointed bullets. It's a little bit less powerful than rounds that we come to know, like the 308 and 3006, but it's very soft recoiling. It can, uh, it can put a 150-grain bullet, Uh, out of the muzzle at about 2,200 feet per second, and it's called the 7.62 by 51R. We want one? It's the 3030. It's the 3030. Not 7.62 by 54R. That's the Mosin the Gaunt round. 51R. Uh, that's how the Europeans designate cartridges. They the, the millimeter by the length and the R stands for rimmed. Uh, that is the 3030, and the 3030 has always never quite been what it could be for range due to the fact that if you put a pointed round in a tubular magazine in a lever-action rifle, there is the, at least the theoretical possibility that when firing one of the rounds in the chamber, the recoil could cause one of the other uh, cartridges to detonate and set four or five of them off in the tube and blow the gun up in your hand so you don't put pointed bullets in a 30-30 and a 30-30 rifle. And Marlins come out with lever lution rounds and stuff, but if you have a 30-30 handy rifle, you can load it up with all the pointed bullets in the world that you want to. And you've got now a gun that you can just take standard 30-30 Winchester load data 
and instead of putting a 150 grain flat point in it, put a 150 grain pointed soft point in it and load that up and you have a great, great round for the young deer hunter to start out with. Absolutely wonderful. And you've got all kinds of playing around you can do. You can go down 110 grain bullets. You can go way up. You can play with this. You can use cast. It's just a lot of fun. And doing these types of experiments with a lower velocity rimmed cartridge with less pressure in that gun, it'll stay more inherently accurate. Here's why. Remember I talked about the oscillation in the harmonics. When you take a high-pressure round in this gun that, again, is not a perfect gun, and you get this oscillation issue, you're going to have oscillation. That's not a problem. But the harmonics, how consistently it, it, it behaves from shot to shot, with a lower pressure and less oscillation, you'll have inherently more consistency. And it's why I think many of us have seen 22 Hornet, 357 Magnum, 44 Magnum, and 3030 just tack driver out of the box out of these guns. So I think it'd be fun to play with. Next one I had to include, my buddy the 3006. Um, it, I mean, what, what can you say? You've got a gun that's taken some of the biggest planes game in Africa. It's taken big bears. It's taken elk. It's taken moose. It's taken probably more deer than any other cartridge out there. Uh, there's more 30.06 ammo sold to the sporting market than any other any other cartridge in the world. Uh, there's more reloading equipment sold for the 30.06 than any other cartridge in the world. It's the most popular because it just works. If you shoot a deer right with a 30.06, it's dead. If you shoot a bear right, you shoot an elk right, it's dead. It works. It is extremely flexible because the 30 caliber has been with us for so long. There's just this huge breadth of, of, of bullets available, so 30.06. Next, um, 35 Whalen. The 35 Whalen is to the 30.06 with the 358 Winchester is to the 308. Instead of necking it down, so there's the 25.06, right? Or we've talked about the 7mm 08, which is a 308 neck down. We take a, a 30.06 and we neck it up. So the neck of the cartridge is expanded from 30 caliber to 35 caliber. And we get what we call a medium bore. Medium bores officially begin, I believe, at 33 caliber. And we just end up with something that just has more knockdown capability than the 30.06. The 35 Whalen and the 338.06 were both cartridges ahead of their time. And what really derailed both of them was the 338 Winchester Magnum. Uh, there was a, the 35 Whalen came out of the same school of thought as the 338, which started out as the 333 O'Keefe. Uh, which is Elmer Keith and somebody else that put this thing together because they just felt the 30.06 wasn't really what they wanted in an elk cartridge. When they got in these bigger bulls, they wanted something that would really knock them down, and they went up to the 33 caliber. Um, the 35 Whalen comes from Colonel Townsend Whalen. That's what's called the Whalen, and it's kind of the same school of thought. Wanted uh, He wanted something with more knockdown power. And remember how I said if you pressed me to, to pick one one gun to, to carry across North America, I'd say it would be the 7mm 08. 
I, I would also be hard pressed not to look at getting a really nice custom mountain rifle and 35 Whalen as an all around gun because it'll it'll do just fine on deer. And in fact, it does a great job on deer because it, it has a little bit more moderate velocity and heavier bullets, so it tends to to anchor deer without doing as much hydrostatic shock and therefore not as much meat damage. And you're certainly never under gun. It's not going to pass through and, and harmlessly put a hole in an animal, which is some kind of nonsense people come up with. It's going to pencil through whatever. Yeah, Let me pencil through your head and see how that works out. Uh, but it's, it, is, it is probably the most versatile and powerful round available in the NEF handy rifle. And it's something that came straight out of just the community asking for it. Um, it was something that many people wanted NEF H&R to do, and it was one of the one of the few times where they really said, "Hey, look, we got a, kind of a cult following us here. They really want this. Let's make it." And they and they did so. Uh, that and the two twenty two two fifty was another one that we saw directly on the email list that they were paying attention and said, "If there's that much demand, we'll come out with these." And the thirty five Willen took some work because it wasn't just the three fifty seven Magnum barrel. Uh, it took actual some work. The 22250 was easy for them to do. All they do is just cha chamber the same barrel they were making 223s on differently. Uh, next up then is the 357 Magnum. Now I've just given you all these great you know real rifle cartridges. Why come down to the 357 Magnum? Well, because it has a lot of utility. It has a lot of utility that it can be done with it. If you load Light 38 specials with, you know, 158 grain wad cutters, um, and put that through a 22 inch barrel. It sounds like pap, pap, like a pellet gun, and it'll plumb take out a squirrel. So you can even hunt small game with it. Um, with the right round and headshots, you could take out a deer and you wouldn't hear anything that sounded like a firearm going off. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that, but if it were ever necessary, it will do it. And uh, some people will again say, I would not recommend this. But with a 158 grain flat point, jacketed soft point, good constructed bullet, it is absolutely an adequate large game cartridge. It'll put deer down left and right all day long, no problem, especially out to about 100 yards. And this is what I find interesting about cartridges like the 357 and 44 Magnum. You put them in a handgun. Wow, it's a cannon. And, and when the 357 came out, great handgun hunters took it all over the world and shot buffalo with it. They shot elk with it. And no one said, that's recklessly irresponsible. Well, you put it in a rifle, you load it up with H110, you gain about 400 pounds of energy, and now it's a pea shooter in some people's minds. I, I just don't get it. My son's little 357 Magnum in the handy rifle, We'll take that out to the gun range. We have it zeroed dead on at 25 yards. And at 25 yards, it will make a single hole. And that's, again, what I was talking about, the inherent accuracy of these things with the lower-pressure rounds. I mean, it is just a big, ragged, thumb-sized, thumbnail-sized hole at 25 yards. At 50 yards, it's just starting to drop. At 100 yards... If you set standard skeet, like you shoot with a shotgun out of the air up on a bank, so they're about four inches, and you take the crosshair of the scope and you put the crosshair so it's sitting on the top of the skeet, it hits it dead center, and, and you can break skeet at 100 yards, smoke them 
all day long. Folks, that ain't much different than the size of a deer's heart. If you can shoot that thing accurately, it is absolutely 100-yard deer caliber. And yet, with a little hand loader, I can load it down to something I can shoot a squirrel without blowing it up. Just thought I'd throw that in there as an option. Everything I just said, except it costs more money to do and everything weighs more, about the 44 Magnum. And it is a deadly deer cartridge at 100, 125 yards. Out of the rifle, um, my favorite hand load uses a 265 grain jacketed soft point from Hornady for the 44 Magnum as a, as a big game cartridge. That is not available in a factory ammo. That bullet was made for the 444 Marlin. But when you put the 44 Magnum into a 22-inch barrel, you get a significant gain in performance. At the most popular bullet weight uh, for the 44 Magnum, 240 grains, uh, you gain about 300 feet per second uh, by going through a rifle-length barrel versus a pistol-length barrel. 300 feet per second. At a, at a bullet weight of 240 grains, that is significant to the point of it's about 500 pounds of energy gained. And when you think about the fact that most people say that for big game hunting, when you're looking at hitting a white-tailed deer uh, size animal, you want about 1,000 pounds of energy. I think that's actually higher than necessary. You look at a 30-30 out at about 200 yards, and it's carrying about 800 pounds, and people shoot deer at 200 yards of the 30-30 all day long. Uh, but you are getting into that marginal zone. When you're talking about half of that as the increase, it is significant. So the 44 Magnum in a rifle has always been one of my favorite. I do not own one in the NEF handy rifle. I do own one in the 44 uh, Marlin lever action, 1894, I believe is the, the model number. It's either 1894 or 1895 uh, lever gun, and I love it. And that loaded... So 44 special loads, the lightest 44 factory special loads you can find, again, is the world's largest pellet gun. Um, I load 300-grain cast uh, bullets with H414. I believe it's 9.8-ish grains. You need to check this. It's from the old Lee manual, the old red one, not the new one. Doesn't The new one doesn't have 300-grain uh, uh, lead hard cast load in it for the 44 Magnum. But it's a factory, or not a factory, a, a, a published load. It's not a squib load. And I believe it's H414 is the powder that I use in that. And I can look it up, and I've published it before, and I'll publish the load that I, I load for the 44 Magnum as part of today's show. But it is phenomenal what that does. I've taken it, and I've fired it at 25 yards at two pressure-treated 4x4. So you're talking about 7 inches of pressure-treated lumber. And with a 300-grain bullet, with that load, you get a through and through through both uh, pieces of wood. So seven inches of pressure-treated lumber penetrated at 25 yards from a round that you can barely hear. It sounds like a cap gun. And then I can take it and turn around and load it up to full power 44 Magnum loads, and it is a, a great big game cartridge. I'd say out to about 100 yards. It gets very um, steep trajectory after that. It's not that the energy is not there, but it becomes more, more and more rainbow-like as you get past 100 yards. Um, but I love both of those cartridges and rifles. Many people think there's no point to it. Why do it? There's better options. And I think if you're buying a lot of guns, uh, it's hard to try to get yourself to buy a 357 Magnum rifle. When you're paying 100 bucks 
and you can get a barrel for a gun you already have, I think it becomes a lot more attractive, and that's what I like about this. 4570 Government is uh, another round that I wanted to include. They also do have it in the 450 Marlin. If you're a hand loader, get the 4570 Government. If you are going to only buy factory ammo, the 450 Marlin will get you the higher pressure loads than you can usually find in 4570 Government. Because ammunition manufacturers, with the exception of a few people like Buffalo Boar that do custom loads, are afraid to load the 4570 to its potential because some fool's going to drop uh, a hot 4570 into like an old trap door somewhere and blow their face up with it. Um, but the 4570 can be loaded within 300 feet per second the 458 Win Mag. So the reason I include that is if there's anything you couldn't get dead <laughs> and didn't feel comfortable shooting uh, with all the other cartridges I talked about today, 4570 will do, do up Cape Buffalo for you. Um, personally, if something can eat me or stomp my guts out, I don't want a single-shot rifle. So I, I don't. that would be one of the disadvantages I didn't cover. I also want to cover some of the shotgun options that are available. One of the coolest barrels that I think they have is a 24-inch 12-gauge barrel. It's got a 3.5-inch chamber, and it uses screw-in chokes, and all their screw-in chokes, they didn't make their own proprietary ones, they used the wind choke. So if you buy one of their, their uh, barrels with a screw-in choke for a shotgun uh, option on, on this frame, and you want a different choke tube, you don't have to go back to them to get it. You can just buy a wind choke of whatever you want, and it screws right in. So uh, that's great. I kind of wish they would have went with the rem choke instead of the wind choke. Wind choke... Uh, does both Winchester and Browning shotguns, I believe. The reason I wish they would have done a rem choke is I have rem chokes because I have Remington shotguns, and I don't own any Winchester shotguns. I think I own one with a screw-in choke. I just bought a little, I don't remember what kind that is, a little 20-gauge I picked up for next to nothing at a gun show, but I don't have a lot of stuff for the wind choke, so it'd be kind of cool if they had done Remington just for me, but they didn't. Now, here's what I like about this. Think about what I said in the beginning. You take the whole chamber away because you're locking the cartridge right to the breech face in in the uh, in the chamber so therefore the the gun is already shorter now let's put a 24 inch shotgun barrel on something uh, that's already had that done to it and we end up with a gun that's less than 40 inches long it is a single shot shotgun it won't you know it's not a pump or a over and under or anything like that so you got one shot But I've got a very handy, no pun intended, shotgun. By going to the shotgun barrel with the thinner gauged steel, and it's not this big, thick, heavy rifle barrel like the, the rifle barrels are, I lose about a pound. So now I've got a six-pound uh, shotgun, very, very handy in the bush for hunting things like, um, you know, let's say a woodcock or grouse or in the, the cornfields hunting pheasants or something like that. And it's fast handling, short length, but I still have 24 inches of barrel there. Uh, I kind of wish they would have made this thing with a 26-inch barrel. That's kind of the, the place where going any longer with a shotgun barrel doesn't do anything ballistically for you at all. But really, but once you're over 20 inches, you're good. So I've got this short, handy shotgun, and it's got a three-and-a-half-inch chamber in it. That means I can put anything from two-and-three-quarter-inch standard light field loads up to big old heavy-duty super goose or turkey loads. And I've got this short shotgun with a, with a variable choke. I could very well get that a couple chokes, and that would be the only thing I would ever need to carry. 
I could use it for, for waterfowl hunting with a tight choke. I could use it with a tight choke for turkeys. I could use, I could shoot doves with it. I've never really thought about this, and this is something some of you guys can help me with, but I don't know how I feel about putting a two and three quarter inch slug into a three and a half inch chamber. That was something I was thinking about today. So I don't know how this works as a slug gun. If it works as that, you've got everything in one. But the next time I send my gun away to get a few things, including that Hornet barrel and probably a 30-30 barrel, it's also coming back with one of these shotgun barrels. Because, again, it's everything from turkeys and geese to light field loads and you name it and anything in between. Again, I don't know how I feel about a slug Uh, it should be fine. Some just doesn't feel right, though, about spanning that gap. If you think about a two and three quarter inch slug going into a three and a half inch chamber, you got three quarters of an inch before you get into a forcing cone. And I just, I, I, I guess that's a question for any F to ask them. You know, do you recommend firing Foster style slugs in uh, this barrel? And I think the answer just on a CYA is going to be no. But I'd love to hear from somebody that has any direct experience with that good, bad, or ugly. Um, there's also a 12 gauge barrel, 24 inches long, that's fully rifled with rifle sights for shooting sabos. I put that in here today. I'm really not highly interested in that, but I know some of you live in states that are shotgun only for deer, or you live in uh, states that have some zones that you might hunt that are shotgun only. So that takes you to another level of performance with slugs. And I also have listed a 20-gauge, 24-inch fully rifled barrel with a scope rail. So if you wanted a slug gun that you could scope... Uh, you would want to go with the 20 gauge. Here's why. They use a very thick barrel to do this. And when you go to the, they do have a 12 gauge, they call it an ultra slug barrel, that you can fire uh, 12 gauge slugs through and have a scope on it and have a scope rail. But when they do that, they have to drill a place for the, the scope rail to mount on, uh, basically on the chamber of the barrel. And with the 12-gauge and starting with basically the rifle barrel stock to make this rifle barrel thing, they just felt that by the time they had machined out the, the, the place for the shell to go, there wasn't enough metal left to then tap in a couple holes to mount a scope rail. So they built the 12-gauge the, the, the ultra slug, they call it, that can have a scope on the 10-gauge frame. So the 10, they also make a 10-gauge shotgun, and they have a 10-gauge frame for that 12-gauge ultra slug. So it's not that you can't do it with NEF. You can't do it with the SP2 rifle frame that all this other stuff goes on. So if you wanted a, tw a, a shotgun that fired fully rifled saboed shotgun slugs, and you wanted a scope on it, and you want an SB2 frame that has all these other options, you got to go with a 20-gauge. Or you can go with a rifled slug barrel that's, that's iron sights only. Some of the people on the list, whether it's a good idea or not, have done their own tap jobs, which I'd really worry about that. And some of them have actually basically brazed and welded a scope rail onto the standard 12-gauge so you could scope that barrel, but that's an aftermarket thing. Um, next up, I have for you just a simple old 20-gauge, 26-inch modified barrel. 
I love my 20-gauge barrel for my handy rifle. And, and the reason is that I can just take one of the rifle barrels off and put that thing on there, and it's so lightweight. And I actually have, personally, I have a 22-inch youth-length 20-gauge barrel. And that, when I'm going in the woods to shoot squirrels, if I'm not taking a 22, is, is my favorite thing in the world. It weighs almost nothing. It, it is so lightweight. It is nowhere near as loud or as obnoxious as a 12-gauge. And, and face it, if you can't kill a squirrel with a 20-gauge, you don't need that squirrel. Um, it's not that 12-gauge is not overall a better uh, shotgun option, but it just it just has this perfect balance to me. Uh, enough power, really, really lightweight. And if you're going to go off and spend a day in the woods and carry a box or two of shells, the 20-gauge shells weigh less. It doesn't mean I have anything against the 12. Just another option I have for you, just because it's cool, and it might be the way that it might be the only way many of us would ever own one. You get a 28 gauge barrel for it. A 28 sits between that 20 gauge and 410 bore, uh, and they offer that in 22 and 26 inch barrels, and it's like 50 bucks. And most 28 gauge shotguns are very expensive shotguns. You know, they're like really beautiful doubles and things like that. So if you've ever just wanted a 28 gauge, for the novelty, and it's a great it's a great option as a shotgun. It for the you know if you want to shoot quail or dove, it, it's a little softer than the 20 gauge, but yet it's 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 better suited for it than the 410 is, especially since and I also have the 410 bore on here, and they have that in 22 and 26 inch, but they only offer that in a full choke, where they offer the 28 in a modified. Here's why I really like this 28 gauge option. You guys that want to teach your young people to shoot a shotgun. And you get that 410 bore with a full choke, and it's an expert's round. It really is. It's, it's not that I worry about the wounded game with it. It's that they're not going to break a lot of clays with it. Because it's such a tight pattern and such a small amount of shot. Yes, the recoil is low, but... When you're teaching a new person to shoot, there's nothing that builds confidence like them breaking a few clays per round, okay, uh, per round of clays. So 25 clays, if they break five when they're young, they're pretty happy about it. And the, the, the number they're going to break with the 410 is just usually not enough to really get them into it. The 20-gauge has always been, the 20-gauge single shot, shotgun has always been the gun that you take the young 10, 11, 12-year-old boy or girl and you teach them how to shoot a shotgun with it. Because it's got one shot, after they fire, they're not going to turn around and blow anybody's foot off. You can see if the hammer's cocked or not. That's another great advantage when you're teaching young shooters. If that hammer's not cocked, I know I'm going to make sure they, they treat it like it's going to go off, but I know it's not going to go off. And I keep an eye on it, and I can maintain control very easily with that single shot. And by going to a 20-gauge, they're more likely to get hits. And if we take them out hunting, they're more likely to put game down. Great. Great. Right up until they shoot it, it knocks the snot out of them. A six-pound single-shot shotgun with a 20-gauge is not brutal, but it's hard on younger shooters. And if you can't... And a lot of times you end up with shooters... And, and, and slip-on recoil pads are kind of a good solution to this at times. But it's hard to get them fitted right to the gun. A youth-length stock is a little bit short, and an adult-length stock is a little bit long. It's almost like there needs to be like that third option there in the middle. 
So if they're already not quite fit to the gun right, maybe it's a little bit heavy for them yet and they're just getting to where they can shoot it, or they're a little bit lanky and they've gotten a little bit bigger, but yet they really can't get a good cheek weld with the full-length stocks so that are still using that. All of those situations, that 20-gauge can be kind of brutal. And you go to a 28, and it's almost as much shot, and it's a nice pattern of shot that comes out of that 28-gauge. And they can hit with it, and the recoil is significantly less than a 20-gauge. Significantly less. And I think if more shotguns had the 28-gauge option, it would become the young shooter gauge of choice to get them started. And at least get them, you know, it, would they be better off with a 20 or eventually a 12 in a lot of different situations? Yeah, but I want the shooter confident. I want to develop good form with them, and then I want to transition them up. So they may not get it. And, you know, the 28-gauge, it doesn't have, you know, a lot of options for shot. It is a specialized round. It's a bird killer. I mean, that's what it is. It is a quail hunter's round. It was, it's almost perfectly made for that. The guy with two really disciplined pointer dogs and a nice place to hunt for quail. And those dogs hold really well. And he's got that beautiful $5,000 28-gauge double gun. And he walks up between his dogs, and those quail take off from 10 feet away. And he lets them go out just a little bit, picks one out, pops them out of the air, and there's still a quail to eat. I mean, that is the essence of the 28-gauge. But it's not a bad dove round either, especially if you can get into a field where your shots aren't these long-crossing shots like they are later in the season. If you could hunt over a stock tank or something like that where the doves are coming in with a young person. And, again, you, with clays, you can control how fast, how far that clay is going just to get the form down. And then, again, I've always wanted to own a 28-gauge, and I don't want to spend $4,000, $5,000, $10,000 on a double gun This is a way to own one dirt cheap. And then the 410, you know, is another great little gun. Um, the 410 uh, shotgun barrels that NEF makes are all full choke. I'm not in love with that, except it's another great swirl option. You get a three-inch, number six shot, 410 cartridge, and a full choke, and you will knock the snot out of squirrels. At 35 yards and in... Headshots, bam. I mean, it just knocks them flat. And there's also number fours you can get that are, are pretty dead gone good for the same thing. I don't see the 410 barrel being a great uh, option for shooting any birds with, really, uh, with the NEF because it's a full choke. I prefer a modified or an improved cylinder for a wing, wing shooting gun uh, in most instances. But it'll work. And it is incredibly lightweight, that little narrow tube, man. And it's it's a good little uh, a good little squirrel gun. That would be my other choice. Would be if I'm going out in the woods just to dink around and probably pop some squirrels. You take a 22 inch barrel, 410, and put it on your on your NEF, and you've got this again, super lightweight, really quiet, um, and more than adequate for the job tool. But, you know, if a grouse happens to get up in front of you, which doesn't happen down here very much, but if you're up in the northeast or something, it's, it's, it's not really ideal. So those are all the shotgun options. Now, I want to talk about, with all these options, and I gave you like half of them. There's a 280 Remington. There's a 270 Winchester. Those are two other great options. The 280 
is basically it does everything the seven millimeter O eight does, but you get a few more feet per second out of it. It's it's the seven millimeter O eight. The nice thing about that in the NEF is it's a twenty two inch barrel. The two eighty, which is also a seven millimeter twenty eight caliber, is a twenty six inch barrel. And the 280 Remington ballistics out of the handy rifle are so close to the 7mm Magnum, there's no reason to have a 7mm Magnum pounding your shoulder at all. So, um, that's like, so that's like two more options. And there's a ton of, there's, uh, a 500. Yep. They, they have the 500 Smith and Wesson, uh, round, which is like a really hopped up handgun round, uh, that is in a, in a rifle barrel is a sledgehammer. I don't see the point, though, because it's expensive ammo, and it really won't do much more than a .45-70 or a .44 Magnum or a .444 Marlin will, all of which will probably cost you less for ammunition, and they're easier to reload. But if you want one, it's there. And I guess for the guy that owns the 500 Smith Wesson handgun anyway, it's just another option. And for $100, bucks, you can add it. And that would be the kind of thing that you want to play around with that 500 Smith Wesson cartridge. You want to... Hand load with it. You want to see what it can do. You want to take it from its 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 you know lo loaded down as far as you can, all the way up. And I mean, how else can you do it so affordably than a hundred bucks and some change in a new barrel for an existing gun? That's that's what makes these things so cool. Well, with all those options on the email list, several times there's been threads that have gone around. Make your dream combo. Some people say you get three barrels. Some people say you get eight. But the most popular number that I've seen come out has been six barrels. So what would you, if you could only own an NEF handy rifle and no other guns, and you had to pick six barrels for it, what would you, what would you put on it? So your rim fires are out because they go on a different frame, and your ultra sluggers and your 10 gauges are out because they, you know, only go on certain frames. Here's what I would do. I would do a 22 Hornet. I can load that down to damn near 22 long rifle uh, pre uh, velocities, and it'll never be a 223, but it's a good 200-yard cartridge that does anything any 22 caliber will out to 200 yards. And these guns are not sniper rifles. They're just not. They're not 400-yard shooters, even though some people are capable of shooting that with them. So as a 200-yard gun, I only need a 200-yard 22 caliber round. So I'd probably go with the Hornet because I can reload it cheaper, it's quieter, and it fills that very small niche role for all of these small game and it doesn't blow stuff up and it's a lot harder to load down the 223 than it is to load down the 22 hornet okay i would go with a 7 millimeter 08 is my all-around big game cartridge and a 35 whalen for everything that might be a little bit bigger that i want some some little more horsepower for yes i left the 3006 out I'm sad, but when I'm forced this way, because I like thought experiments, it just seems like the way to go. I get all the versatility. It's 7mm OA to do anything the 06 will, and the 35 Whalen steps up into that big elk, big bear classification, which means I don't need a 4570 or something like that, because if, if I can't kill it with a 35 Whalen, I'm not messing with it with a single shot gun. All right? The next thing I would add, and this will surprise some people, is a 357 Magnum. I would do that because I can cheat. I can get three barrels for the price of one. Because no one said I'm not allowed to alter the barrel. So my Hornet's going to become a K-Hornet. 
right? I'm not going to improve the 35 Whalen as an Ackley improved because there's not enough improvement there. But the 357 Magnum, I'm going to get a reamer, and I'm going to ream that 357 Magnum chamber to 357 maximum. What is a 357 maximum? I'm glad you asked. For a time, the 357 Magnum, 357 Maximum, I'm sorry, was the most powerful handgun in the world. The 357 Maximum came out in a really great big Dan Wesson revolver. And it would drive a 158 grain bullet, the classic bullet for the 357 Magnum, at about 1600 feet per second. This is a big improvement. The 357 Magnum in a similar revolver will only drive that same bullet at about 1,250 feet per second. So we have gone from 1,250 feet per second as a maximum velocity to about 1,600 feet per second. So it's a gain in velocity, but velocity is not really what we want to look at. We want to look at the, the rise in energy impact power. So when the 357 Max came out, in that 158-grain uh, bullet load, the energy at the muzzle was about 548 pounds from the 357 Magnum. The maximum took that energy up to 897 pounds of energy. So it was a huge exponential increase. Why didn't this wonderful thing stay around? Well, the problem was by making that cartridge longer and putting all that powder in there and sticking it in a revolver, uh, it, it would basically burn out the forcing cones in the chambers and, and just made a mess. And the, the gun was like a, a disposable handgun. It, it, it just didn't really last. Um, it kind of, it kind of shot itself out. So it was a very expensive, you know, disposable gun and you had to replace parts of it. And it was just, they're, they're still around, but they're not popular and they never took off. And that's, that's what did it in. Well, then, like, Metallic Silhouette shooting came out and the Thompson Center Contender, which is a, a handgun, a long-barreled handgun, about 10-inch barrel. It's a single-shot handgun, a lot like the rifles we're talking about today. And a lot of guys started using those, and they said, hey, wait a minute, this 357 Maximum thing exists. Brass is plentiful and available. It uses the same primers, the same powder. Everything is the same. The case is just a little bit longer. All i got to do is get a reamer and ream this thing out a little bit longer, and I can put that in here, and what will happen? Well, they did that, and that took the velocity of 158-grain round up to about 1,800 feet per second, and that means that little Thompson, uh, Thompson Encore contender, whichever one it is, it's the Encore, uh, is putting out about 1,136 pounds of energy at the muzzle. Well, along comes the NEF and people like me and go, if they can do that, what can we do? And the answer was we could do the same thing with a 22-inch barrel. And we would get a muzzle velocity then of about 2,100 feet per second out of that same bullet, 158 grains. And we would get an energy of 1,546 pounds of energy from the 357 maximum. And that wasn't the only option that we had. Now that we were moving into the 357 max range, we could go ahead and chunk 180 grainers in there and see what happened with it. And 
it turned out when a couple people tried it and put it on the chronograph that we couldn't get 2,100 feet per second out, but get about 1,900 feet per second out of it, which is a little less energy, but 1,442 pounds of energy. Um, so really close to the same amount of energy, but a heavier, better constructed, better big game bullet. Putting this in perspective for you, and now you'll see why this play by me in the barrel realm was genius. The uh, 35 Remington, and I'm not claiming this makes your NEF into a 35 Remington, but the 35 Remington pushes a 200-grain bullet at about 2,000 feet per second, yielding about 1,700 pounds of energy. So you're within 150 to 200 pounds of energy off of the 35 Remington uh, using 180 grain or 158 grain well-constructed bullets in the 357 maximum. But yet I can still throw a 357 Magnum round in there if that's what I have, and I can still, yes, I can still shoot 38 specials out of there. So now I've got a single barrel that uses three different cartridges. And I can load the 38 specials down to the lightest 38 special loads and basically have something I can shoot small game with without blowing it up or target practice very quietly with or take larger game very selectively in a way that I don't want to be discovered that I exist. Or I can put a, a, a pounding, thumping round out of there uh, delivering 1,500 pounds of, of energy or, or even more if I tweak things just a little bit more. So I get that one barrel, and I have basically a light 35 Remington all the way down to a light 38 special from that one barrel. That's why I chose that barrel. And it will do things for me that way that the 44 Magnum cannot do. The 444 Marlin is too long. I, don't, I just don't think it's practical to be shooting 44 specials out of a 444 Marlin. But the 357 Maximum, it's not that big of a, of, a length, of a length extension. It's just like shooting 38 specials out of a 357 Magnum. No problem whatsoever. You can go up and down all you want with that. I know because I've done it. I would add to it a 12-gauge, 28-inch modified barrel. I was really tempted to add that cool 24-inch, 3.5-inch chamber uh, barrel, but until I know whether I can put slugs out of it, I'm sticking with a 28-inch modified 12-gauge barrel because I can fire slugs out of that, I can fire shot out of that, I can fire anything out of that, and you know every place you turn you can fire 12-gauge ammo, and if you can't find 12-gauge ammo, you can fire 20-gauge ammo, so 20-gauge with a 26-modified barrel. And with that, that's so that's my dream team. I'd like to hear yours. Go look at the barrel accessory program, see everything that's there. What would you build? So again, mine is the 22 Hornet 7mm 08, 35 Whalen, 357 Mag turned into a maximum, 12 gauge and 20 gauge barrels. I hope you guys enjoy this show. I know I might have rambled a little gun geek on you at some times, and I know that I've got people that listen to this show more for the homesteading stuff that aren't real gun people or whatever, and getting into things like sectional density and ballistic coefficients, it can be kind of boring. It's like listening, and when I listen to Joe and, and Kelly talk about camera shutter speeds and stuff, I'm just, I don't care. Um, so hopefully I didn't make too many of you feel that way, but... This gun is one of the great American stories, if you think about it. It is inherently safe, inherently reliable. They last for damn near ever. The, the flexibility is unequaled, in my opinion. Um, the fact that they can be sent back in and these extra barrels can be bought for them. And frankly, you know, if you just wanted, uh, uh, I, well, I want to add a 30-30. You can go out and buy a brand new gun for 240 bucks. 
So yeah, you can save money by just doing the barrel, but you know if you pick up a few of them, you've got the flexibility and you've got multiple frames and multiple exchanges. And I'll tell you what, the NEF uh, Handy Rifle email list has not been very active this year. It hasn't really been for about the last two years. But there's not a better group of guys on the Internet to talk to. And if you have a question, I'll answer it. The reason the email list has gotten so slow is if you come on that email list and you have a question, you use a search feature, everything's been discussed a hundred times. So it's really kind of a point of now it's just treasure trove of information. But there's always people that want to talk about those guns because they're special. And I think many of us remember either an old partner shotgun, which is the same company, or an old Stevens or an old Sears and Roebuck single-shot shotgun. And these guns are built on that same basic design, and there's just something humbling about, hey, you get one shot, it either happens or it doesn't. And having a working man's tool that anybody that really wants to afford one can afford one. They're not overpriced. They're not you know astronomically priced. If you want just the shotguns, um, you can get a shotgun and you can fit all the shotgun barrels on it with the few limits I talked about as far as you know, the 10-gauge frame to the Ultra Slugger and the 10-gauge barrels. But uh, a brand-new NEF Partner shotgun is like 80, 80, 90 bucks. So the shotguns are dirt cheap. And uh, the only problem there, if you buy the shotgun frame, you cannot put the rifle barrels on it. I believe you can do the 357 and the 44 Magnum on the shotgun frames, and that is it, because you have to stick to lower pressures. And I, if you're going to want rifle barrels, I would just go with the, the, the rifle frame. So that's the, the receiver piece, which is the actual gun. A um, couple things I want to add. The big question is always, when I'm swapping out these barrels, if I have a scope... Does that scope stay zeroed? My experience has been yes. I've had a few people say no, and they're usually probably people that haven't done a good job mounting their scope. The scope rail is attached to the barrel, and the scope rings are attached to the scope rail. So when you pull the barrel, the scope stays exactly relative to the barrel the way that it always was. So the receiver stays behind and a new barrel comes on. This is where things can get expensive. So, yes, I can say, well, I've got my little 243 and I want to add a 35 whaling barrel to it. And I can get that for $104 plus shipping. And I'll put it on there and I get it back and there it is. And that barrel actually comes with iron sights if I want it. So I got iron sights on it. But I'm probably not wanting to use iron sights for 35 whaling. I probably want to maximize that 200, 300 yard range of that, that medium bore cartridge. Well, I need a scope. The scope could cost more than the gun and the two barrels. So as you start scoping these things, they start running into some expense. But I've found probably the best value in low-end scopes is Simmons. Um, Simmons scopes, Simmons 44 Mag, Simmons Whitetail, uh, those are the great scopes for the money. You know, you're under 100 bucks for most of the models, just over 100 So as you look at how cool this is, I can own all this stuff, if you start thinking about scoping it, you know, unless you want to pull scopes and have to re-zero, you're looking at a scope per every weapon you want scoped. Now, do you need to scope a 357 Magnum in this? No, but frankly, you're probably going to want to. You pop a little fixed four power on that thing, and that thing is a tack driving thing out to 100 yards. 44 Magnum, maybe, I don't know. My 4570, I don't have a scope on it. I have no plans to put it on there. Um, I look at that as a 100-yard tool for big game. 
And if I can't hit it at 100 yards, then uh, I don't need to be shooting at it. Uh, 22 Hornet, man, you don't want to scope on that, even though it comes with iron sights. Some of these barrels come with iron sights, some don't. It all says, you know, what they come with. And I'll put a link to the barrel accessory uh, uh, page on the NEF website. Um, so there is that. And if you start reloading, well, then you need a set of dies, right, for each round. And if you don't have any bullets in that round, you need some bullets and some cases and, you know, the, the, use a different primer than what you primarily reload. So it, it really, I want to kind of make the case that if you just want a nice combo, like a 3006 that will also throw a 12-gauge barrel on it, it's it's pretty economical. It's it's hard to beat the economics. If you are the person that that gets into this stuff and has a reloading bench and all the stuff, it, it can be an expensive hobby because all of a sudden you're putting a three hundred dollars custom made walnut stock, and I haven't done this, but I've seen people do it on a two hundred dollar gun and a six hundred dollar scope, and you know at that point you could have went out and bought a purpose built mountain rifle, but I guess it wouldn't be something you built yourself and it wouldn't be unique. And I think that the biggest appeal to people that like to play with the NEF is everybody can kind of make theirs their own. You, you seldom meet people when you say, well, what barrels do you have? And they have the exact same choices. If I gave you the, the ultimate combo six-barrel kit, you know, odds are you'd come up with something different than I did. So just in that alone, it becomes unique. There, and there's, there's different stock options. There's what's called a camo laminate which really is more of a red and green uh, color to it. There's a cinnamon laminate. There's a stock stocks that come with it. There's a lot of different options. There's a survivor model. There's the Tamer, which is a 410. Uh, there's a barrel that shoots both 410 and 45 Colt. I mean, there's just so much that this allows you to do for not a lot of money that it can become a lot of money. But, <laughs> yes, you could have spent, you know, a 1000 bucks. This way, you'd have one gun and maybe a scope, right? Or you could spend a thousand bucks and have this kind of plethora. And I kind of like the fact that there is a limit to the accuracy out of these. Now, I've seen guys shoot, you know, dime sized groups out of a 3006, you know, at 150 yards with them. But you, you, when you, when you see the targets, you get the feeling like this was a really good day <laughs> that this happened. Um, They're not the most inherently uh, accurate rifles out there. They're very accurate for what they are. They're accurate enough that people are usually surprised, you know, when they buy a $230 gun, take it home and shoot it, and, you know, get a 50-cent piece size group at 100 yards out of it. They're, wow, this is, this is pretty special. But you won't see people competing in long-range target competitions at a world-class level with these. You're just not going. That's not what they are. So that means that I don't need to go out and put, you know, a $600 loophole scope on it. That's just overkill for that gun. These are these are fun guns. These are guns that you take one gun and a screwdriver and a bunch of different ammo and some tabletop reloading equipment to a range and spend all day shooting 10 different calibers if you want to. Load it up, load it down, playing around with it. And... There's a certain mental health thing, I think, to that. And they're great hunting guns. If you go to today's show notes, episode 1417, you'll see all the way back from 2002, uh, yours truly, quite a bit younger looking than I do today. Uh, I guess that was, what, 12 years ago? 
um, with a 260-pound bore that I shot, a 265-pound bore I shot with a 45-70 NEF. And I've shot deer over the years with it. If you get on the Yahoo group, you can page through, you see everything from people taking long shots and taking out coyotes to deer and, and just countless game animals taken with them. They are a working man's hunting gun, and they are a tinkerer's play gun at the same time. And they won't let you down. I'll tell you that about them. They won't let you down. If you do your part, they will do their part, and they're a great thing to have a lot of fun uh, with younger shooters with and to teach younger shooters about reloading, getting them excited. And when a kid comes up, I want to learn how to reload a 30-30. Well, it's going to take six weeks to get one, but we can get a barrel for 100 bucks. And it opens up a lot of options. Again, think about the 30-30 as a completely new cartridge when you put it in a handy rifle. Spitzer bullets, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a totally different animal. It really is. We can, we can play with it in different ways that we wouldn't do with a lever action. We can next size only reload. So we get more inherent accuracy. And I think that if you are a reloader or you want to get into reloading, and you want to play around with a lot of different cartridges and learn about their history and see what they're capable of, both on the high side and the low side, there, there probably isn't a better platform to do it with. I mean, you can you can find some rounds that you can't get, even some older rounds that you can't get in the in the NEF. You know, I guess uh, no 260 Remington, for example, no 6.5 millimeter Swedish Mauser. Uh, and of course, they don't have any of the Ultra Mags or any of the new stuff like that, but uh, they don't really need to. You, you'll spend a long time before you run out of options uh, with the NEF Handy Rifle. So hopefully, again, you've enjoyed today's show, and uh, I'll try to do some more firearm shows for you guys in the future. Uh, there are some pretty good ones there. I will put a link today to uh, another show I did in the past that was all about terminology. Understanding things like ballistic coefficient, sectional density, and some of the things I threw around today and just assumed you knew. So uh, I don't want to just do another show like that since it was so academic. But if you want to know more about ballistics, I've got a great show for you uh, to listen to on that. And with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast to help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.